The first reading is taken from Matthew chapter 1. We'll be starting at verse 1 and reading through to verse 17. So that's Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah. Abijah the father of Asa. Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram. Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Christ. Here ends the first lesson. Alistair, thank you very much, and I feel the need to add, well done. <laughs> Let me add my welcome uh, to Matt. I'm Simon Pedley, one of the ministers here, and let's pray as we approach this passage. Heavenly Father, we always need your help to understand Scripture, to appreciate your message to us through it, and to live it. Help us, Lord, as we approach this passage that seems at first read less than scintillating. Help us uh, to see your glory there and to live it for your sake. Amen. Well, as Matt said, uh, couldn't Matthew have come up with a better way to introduce his gospel? I guess the, the four gospel writers had various choices. Uh, that they could have taken as they uh, began their, their writing. Mark started with the first public appearances of Jesus. Luke started further back with the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. John went even further back to uh, before the beginning of time when Jesus was with God in eternity and created the world. I guess that's the kind of choice you can only make if your biography is about Jesus. 
Um, But Matthew begins with this genealogy, which means that the whole of the New Testament begins with this genealogy. And maybe we wonder if Matthew would have done well to consult a sort of uh, style expert for his writing or or gone to see a publisher to work out what would have sold the best. Um, Because generally speaking, I think our problem with this is that we're not interested in other people's genealogies. We might be interested in our own genealogies. Uh, It can be quite fascinating to find out about your ancestors. Maybe you've dabbled in uh, Ancestry.com, GenesReunited.com, it seems to be all great at the moment. Um, One of my distant relatives has put an enormous Headley family tree online on a website, and it makes reasonably interesting reading, I think. Um, But only for me, I wouldn't imagine that any of you would want to spend time there. I suspect that if I reel off some of my genealogy, uh, I'm Simon, son of Roger, son of Eric, son of Samuel, son of George, son of Richard, son of Thomas, son of John, son of Richard, son of Philip, and that's all true, but I bet none of you have been scribbling furiously uh, out of fascination with the Pedley family tree. It's just not interesting uh, when it's someone else's. In fact, the only time we bother to learn someone else's family tree is uh, quite often at this time of year when uh, you're about to go to a family Christmas gathering, maybe, maybe of your spouse or your fiancé, and uh, you're desperate to know the right people and not to put your foot in it and uh, think that the wrong aunt is married to the wrong uncle and that sort of thing. Um, but you might say, hold on, Jesus' Jesus's genealogy here contains some pretty significant people. And Matthew puts them right up front in verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is descended from some big names, biblically speaking. But in a sense, we can still say, so what? A lot of people are descended from some big names, I wonder if some of us here this morning could name some big names. Probably some of you are descended from famous people. Uh, One of my friends is Andre Agassi's cousin. Another one of my friends is uh, Charlize Theron, the the Hollywood actress's cousin. Um, They don't get special treatment because of that. It's just a a quirky fact about them. Um, In my family tree, somewhere near the top, there's a a sort of mysterious dotted line that says Edward III at the top. (laughs) Nobody knows what it means. Uh, I like to think it's something scandalous and uh, illegitimate, and maybe one day somebody will knock on my door and say there's, a big, there's been a big mistake with the royal line. And uh, <laughs> <coughs> more likely somebody worked for him as a servant, something like that. Um, I'm also, as it happens, a direct descendant of Benjamin Franklin, so respect from the Americans here. Um, uh, one of the founding fathers. So that's, that's mildly interesting for me. Uh, But not for you, not really. Um, My point is that none of this changes anything about the way you should treat me uh, or anything about me and my identity. But some people's genealogies are much more significant because they're more than just records of the past. They are vital evidence of a person's identity now and their role in the present. Think of uh, Kate Middleton meeting... Prince William. For her, being aware of his genealogy is pretty crucial. Uh, I, I, 
I think she already knew exactly who he was when she first met him. But uh, imagine that she didn't. Imagine that those two met and uh, were becoming good friends. One day he would have to sit her down and say, um, Kate, do you, do you know what my dad's name is? Charles. Oh, great. I, I look forward to meeting him. And do you know what my, my, my grandma's name is? It's uh, Elizabeth. And uh, my, my great-grandma was, my great-grandpa was called George, and uh, his dad was also called George. And sometimes to distinguish them, we call them George V and George VI, um, to, to save confusion. So, quite a few Georges then in the family. Oh, yeah, yeah, other Georges, uh, quite a few Henrys, a few Edwards, a Victoria, another Elizabeth. And at some point, I guess, she would have um, twigged. Uh, she's speaking to the future King of England. Uh, his genealogy is his CV, in a sense, his historical credentials. It defines who he is, identifies him, and marks out the role that he's going to occupy during his life. So marrying Will for Kate means marrying into that history and everything that comes with it. No wonder he wanted to give her plenty of time to just come to terms with that. Matthew's intention with this genealogy of Jesus is to give us a similar genealogy to William's. It's a royal one, which supplies us with the historical credentials of Jesus. Jesus, like Prince William, is born to be king. But actually, the, the genealogy of Jesus puts Williams in the shade. The kingdom Jesus is coming into is much bigger much more impressive, as we'll see, than William's. William is born to be a king. Jesus is born to be the king, the king of kings. We'll see that Jesus' genealogy points to him being king for all time, king for all people, and in particular, king for the lost. We'll get to that. And as we head into this Christmas season with all the fun and the adornment and the, the decoration and the jollity and we get ready to enjoy the nativity story again, the baby in Bethlehem, the shepherds, the angels, baby Jesus, the way Matthew begins his gospel with this genealogy has the effect of pulling us up short, uh, giving us a dose of reality. It asks us, have you come to terms with who that baby Jesus really is? Don't just enjoy the stories and miss the significance. These are the stark historical credentials of Jesus which identify him, mark out his role. So have we, this morning, come to terms with who he really is? So let's look at the main features of this genealogy. Matthew's actually made it reasonably easy for us to spot the things that he regards as, as key to it. Um, we've already seen that he lists the most significant characters in verse 1. Jesus himself, and then David and Abraham. And then at the end in verse 17, he lists those people again, Abraham, David, Christ. And he also mentions an event, the exile to Babylon. So Abraham, David, the exile, those are the, the pegs in the ground over which this genealogy is stretched. Uh, three turning points that Matthew wants us, us to, to focus on and highlight. And he mentions 14 generations between each of those turning points. Now, um, a little aside, one or two of us might be aware uh, of some so-called discrepancies between this genealogy and the one in Luke's gospel. 
uh, you might have come across critics of the Bible suggesting that uh, those discrepancies are part of the evidence against the Bible's reliability and authority. Just a couple of very brief points about that. Um, Firstly, Matthew's intent here is not to give us every detail. He actually skips lots of generations as he goes through, uh, if you compare this with the account of the kings in the books of Kings and Chronicles, in order to make his, his three neat groups of 14. That wasn't an unusual practice uh, in ancient genealogies. To be somebody's father could mean being their grandfather or their great-great-great-grandfather. The important thing is the line of descent, uh, not to fill in every generation. And Matthew's original readers would have, would have known their history or would have had access to teaching from Kings and Chronicles. So there's no deceit involved in him putting it that way. Why 14 generations in each of those three things? It's a way of making a, a long, messy history a bit more manageable uh, and of highlighting the most important features um, as we're, we're seeing this morning. Maybe we can say that 14 is a multiple of seven, the biblical number of completion, perfection. There's not much more that we can say than that about how Matthew has structured it. Um, just secondly, Matthew traces the line through the royal heirs to the throne, going from David through King Solomon and the other kings. So his main purpose is to show Jesus' direct descent through the line of royal heirs. Uh, And Luke takes a different route. He goes through one of David's other sons, uh, and the lines converge and split and come back again. Um, It's possible that Luke gives us the ancestors of Mary rather than uh, the ancestors of Joseph's line. Um, Look, don't get bogged down in that stuff. Just a couple of things to help. It's quite speculative, but it shows that there's no good reason to write off this genealogy or Luke's genealogy as contradictory. When we read scripture, we say, don't we, this is God's word. This, Matthew chapter 1, is God's word. So let's come to terms with who Jesus really is according to this genealogy. So first, he's the son of David. And that's the first connection that Matthew highlights in verse 1. David appears there. He also appears twice in verse 6, the only person named twice in the genealogy. Uh, He's listed again in a summary in verse 17. So clearly very important. And in the rest of Matthew's gospel, the title, Son of David, comes up over and over again. People see what Jesus is doing, and they, uh, they ask, could this be the Son of David? They, they cry out to him, have mercy on me, Son of David. They welcome him by saying, Hosanna, Son of David. What accounts for all this expectation? for someone who would be the son of David? What accounts for this hope and clamor for a son of David? Well, maybe you know that David himself was a great king in the Old Testament. And maybe you know that God gave David promises about uh, one of his descendants who would come and rule one day. And uh, on the screen, we're going to read a quick snippet of the promise given to David. This is from 1 Chronicles 17. Uh, When your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, David, to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take away my love from him as I took it away from your predecessor. 
I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. So the promised son of David, when he came, would be king forever. King for all time. Unlike any other king, the throne of this king would last eternally. And this promise was reiterated many times, filled out with more and more detail through the Bible, uh, including in a passage that we very often read at Christmas time, Isaiah 9. Let's have a, a very quick read of that. Uh, familiar words. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In many ways, the Old Testament after David is simply a hunt for this king, a long wait for him to arrive. And one after another, David's descendants came and went. Uh, The ones in this list from verse 7 onwards, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, they took the throne. Some ruled reasonably well, some ruled spectacularly badly, and then they went. Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, like Neo in the Matrix, the question following each one was, could he be the one? Is this the one? Manasseh, no. Amon, no. Josiah, no. Jeconiah, no. In reality, not even the best of them could come close to that promised figure. None of them could realistically be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. It would take someone truly divine to fit that description. And then, disaster. No more kings. Uh, In verse 12, we get the exile to Babylon. And that marks the end of the ruling sons of David. And the rest of Matthew's list didn't even have a throne to sit on, uh, let alone one that would last forever. So if Jesus is the son of David... It means he is the promised one, the long-awaited one who would reign on David's throne for all time. Small wonder the, the breathless excitement of those who encountered him and began to suspect that he really was the one. Now, can you contemplate an everlasting ruler? It's hard because we've never known one in human terms. In normal human experience, kings, queens, politicians, they they come and they go just as they did throughout Israel's history. The succession of monarchs or presidents or prime ministers in any country resembles this succession of names in Matthew chapter 1. These days, the rulers change even more quickly, don't they? It's not just one each generation as the royal family goes through, but once every four or five years when we have an election and there's the potential for the whole leadership to change over. It's hard to contemplate an everlasting ruler. But that's what the son of David is. 
Maybe there's a part of you and me that longs for that permanence under such a a wonderful permanent king. Maybe this is only me, but um, there's part of me that hasn't quite accepted the the way human leaders are not permanent. So um, my earliest memories of political leaders are of Maggie Thatcher uh, as Prime Minister, Ronald Reagan as US President, Mikhail Gorbachev as the Soviet leader. And every now and then, um, I have this bizarre feeling that uh, the world that has moved on from them is somehow wrong uh, without them being in place. Maybe one day they'll be be back and surprise everybody. Um, I did say that's probably just me, and it's looking increasingly unlikely, it has to be said, uh, especially in Reagan's case. Um, But there's, there's something in me that longs for permanence and stability in the way that Jesus, the King forever, offers Human leaders haven't stayed. They won't stay. The political colours in this country change and change again. Since I was growing up, they've gone from blue to red and back to blue, with now a bit of yellow mixed in. Um, But Jesus, the son of David, is king for all time. His reign is the permanent reign of the Prince of Peace. Doesn't something in all of us long for that? that permanence, that wonderful stability under his reign. That's who the Christmas baby is, the son of David, the king for all time. Have you come to terms with who he is? He's also, secondly, king for all people. Now, that's why Matthew traces Jesus' line not just back to David, but all the way back to Abraham as well. And there could be a danger in thinking that the throne of David is just the throne of Israel. Uh, So that it's all very well having an everlasting king for all time, but he's only king of a very small group of people and uh, a very specific geographical area. But when we bring Abraham into the picture, we're reminded that the, the sweep of God's plan includes every nation on earth. Seeing as we've been studying Galatians recently on Sunday mornings, uh, here's the way it's put there. Uh, Let's have that up on the screen, if we can. Uh, From Galatians 3. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. He... Christ redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So Abraham was told, all nations will be blessed through you. And the fulfillment of that promise came through Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. So that not just Jews, but also Gentiles, in other words, the rest of the world would be blessed. Some of us here this morning are Jews Most of us are Gentiles, but whichever we are, Jesus was born to be our king. Throughout history, God has been drawing people from all nations into his kingdom. And uh, we see that actually happening right here in this genealogy. Maybe you noticed, as uh, Alistair read it, that four women are mentioned in the list of names. Five if you include Mary. Normally, only men were included in lists like this, and mostly that's the case here. So it's worth asking, why did Matthew choose to include these particular women? 
Well, part of the answer is that several of them were non-Israelites who were drawn in to the people of God. So Rahab, in verse 5, was a Canaanite from Jericho. Ruth, in verse 5, was a Moabitess. And in verse 6, Uriah's wife, who we know from the Old Testament as Bathsheba, may or may not have been a Hittite herself, but was certainly originally married to one and therefore a Hittite by marriage. Also possible that uh, uh, Tamar, in verse 3, was a Canaanite. So these women give us a picture of God's inclusion of people from all nations into this uh, family tree of Jesus, into his plans for Israel. God is no racist. Uh, These women prove that Jesus himself was no pure-blood Israelite. There's plenty of muggle mixed in from elsewhere. And uh, with the, the coming of Christ, this trickle of foreigners into God's people became an unstoppable flood. So in the pages of the New Testament... Uh, First, Samaritans, then Greeks, then Romans, and Africans, and Europeans, and Asians, and finally in history, people from bizarre, exotic places like Britain and America came under the grand sweep of God's plan, included in Christ, brought under the reign of this king for all people. Abraham wasn't just the father of Israel. He was the father of many nations. Jesus isn't just the king for Israel. He's the king for all people. Now, maybe, uh, just maybe, that sounds slightly sinister to you. A king seeking to reign over everybody. But again, I suspect that that is because the only experience we have of people trying to reign over lots of people uh, is of merely human rulers. And we've, we've seen the dictators and the despots and the expansionist tyrants who have sought to increase their realms and their kingdoms by force. And we've seen the the terrible harm done in history by those seeking to impose a a greater Germany or a, a greater Iraq or a greater Russia, even a greater Britain or a greater America. And so we're suspicious of any king claiming a universal rule. But the son of David, the king for all people, is also the son of... Uh, Sorry, the son of Abraham, the king for all people, is also the son of David, the king for all time. The one who will rule all people as the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. He's the only one that I would trust to rule all people. He's the only one who could rule all people and who could continue to do so perfectly, righteously, peacefully, forever. That's who came at Christmas. That's who the Christmas baby is, the son of Abraham, the king for all time. The son of, sorry, the son of David, the king for all time. The son of Abraham, the king for all people. Have we come to terms with who he is? One final element to draw out from Matthew's genealogy. We've mentioned all the pegs in the ground except one. Matthew takes us from Abraham to David And then to the exile before he takes us to Christ. Why is the exile so significant? We've already said that the exile put an end to the line of kings. That although David had descendants after that time, there was no throne. None of them reigned in Israel after that point. 
Um, after the exile, uh, Israelites were allowed to return from Babylon to the land, but there was no king. Uh, a succession of empires ruled over Israel. Apart from a couple of abortive attempts to gain independence, there was no king. Certainly nobody from David's line. And you could say, because of that, that the exile was never truly over until a king from the line of David would rule again. That's what they were waiting for. Well, here's Jesus come to finally end the exile, finally to restore what was lost. But here's the thing. The exile was a result of sin, the result of uh, the failure of Israelites to, uh, or their kings to live in relationship with God. Their failure to obey him led to the punishment of that exile in Babylon. The failure of the kings to rule in righteousness, as they should have done, led to their removal from the throne. And the exile showed how lost the people were. Lost in sin. Lost in rebellion against God. Lost in uh, their inability to save themselves. Lost in uh, seemingly inescapable punishment. And if we broaden the picture and take into account what the whole Bible says about this. Exiled Israel was just a a picture, a kind of microcosm of an exiled world, this world that we all live in. Gentiles, also exiled. Gentiles in all nations, lost in sin, lost in rebellion against God, lost in our inability to save ourselves, lost in seemingly inescapable punishment, a truly lost world. And the son of David, the son of Abraham, came to that lost, exiled world. He came to seek and to save what is lost. And the story of Matthew's gospel, as it continues, is one that ends with the death of Jesus for our sins, the final act of salvation for the lost. But we don't need to look that far. Even within this genealogy, we can see lost sinners being rescued and brought to God. So think again of those four women who are mentioned here besides Mary. Each of them was mired in hardship or sin of some kind. Tamar, in verse 3, was treated despicably by Judah, her father-in-law, who unwittingly hired her as a prostitute and fathered children by her. Matthew didn't have to name Tamar. He didn't have to refer to that sordid incident. And yet, here she is, given pride of place in this roll call of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. Rahab, in verse 5, made her living as a prostitute, running a, a brothel from her home before the Israelites arrived. She took them in, kept them safe from harm, uh, and in return, she was taken in and kept safe, welcomed into the people of God. But it's another sordid, embarrassing story which could so easily have been glossed over. Matthew didn't have to tell us about it. But he wants us to see how the lost are being found, how the sinners are finding a welcome and a place in God's kingdom. And what a place. Not just reluctantly ushered into a, a side room and told to be quiet, uh, but brought into the, this mainstream, this roll call, this parade of God's people in Christ's family tree. 
As with Rahab, same with Ruth the Moabite in verse 5, and same with Bathsheba in verse 6. Her connection with David's line began with an illicit affair when she was married to another man, and yet, here she is. Isn't it incredible that Matthew goes out of his way to mention these women so lost and yet so found? And these are not the only ones. It would be unfair not to mention some of the men. Abraham, who lied about his wife. Jacob, the liar and the cheat. Judah, the prostitute user. David, the adulterer. Solomon, the the womanizer and the idolater. And so on and so on and so on through this list. This is truly a parade of sinners. A parade of the lost. And these are exactly the kind of people that Jesus came for. He came to be their king. Our king. Could you add your name to this parade of sinners? If Jesus is your king, then somewhere down the line, a bit further down, then your name is on this roll call of sordid embarrassments because that's what Jesus' subjects are. They're the lost. Lost Jews, lost Gentiles, lost Chinese, lost Brits, lost Germans, lost Americans, or rather once lost, now found. Once exiled without a king, now welcomed by the king of kings. King for all time, king for all people, king for the lost. That is the Christmas baby. Have you come to terms with who he really is? See, in many ways, the way we celebrate Christmas is... A very fitting tribute, uh, a fitting welcome to a great king. You know how when the queen comes to a, a factory or a school or a town, everything's cleaned and painted and it's scrubbed up and made to look beautiful in order to give her the best possible welcome. And I guess when the, the royal wedding happens next year, uh, there'll be a national holiday and celebrations and decorations of various kinds around the country. Well, at Christmas, we do something similar. We, we celebrate uh, the coming of our king and everything is made to look beautiful. Our houses are decorated, our streets are full of lights, the sound of carols, uh, speaking words to this great king can be heard in every shop up and down the land. And I may be an old romantic, but I love how London looks this time of year. I wander around after dark seeing the lights and the the warm glow and the snow and all of that. I love it. Uh, And we take holiday this time of year. We spend time with, with family. In many ways, it is so appropriate as a way to honor King Jesus, the Christmas baby, But, of course there's a but, sometimes there's just no reality to it. Either Jesus is sidelined and replaced by anything and everything else, or he just becomes part of the sentiment. Yeah, we'll have the Christmas baby and the cradle and the angels and the shepherds and the wise men, along with the tinsel and the presents and everything else. And we'll enjoy the story and the warm feeling, but like Peter Pan, he'll never grow up. He'll never leave the manger There's no reality. Maybe we don't believe in the real Jesus at all. Or maybe we do, but he's sort of in our mind separated off from the Christmas Jesus. It's as if even for Christians, the Christmas Jesus can exist in some sort of uh, fantasy fairy tale world detached from the rest of our faith. The rest of the year we we have the serious Jesus and we have the the fairy tale Christmas Jesus, but that's something different. Well, in all of the adornment this year and the celebration of Christmas, which is all very appropriate and wonderful in its own way, 
Wouldn't it be great to let the, these bare, unadorned facts of the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel keep us grounded in Christmas reality? It is a wonderful reality. A king for all time, a king for all people, a king for the lost. This is who the Christmas baby really is. It's a big, overwhelming, life-changing reality that turns everything upside down. The celebrations make no sense without the facts. The adornment and the decoration make no sense without the reality. So celebrate, yes, adorn, decorate, really enjoy Christmas if you can. But do it because you know the wonderful reality about who the Christmas baby really is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that 2,000 years ago a baby was born in a manger in Bethlehem. A baby who didn't stay there but grew up to prove himself to be the son of David who, who lived, who died, who rose again and who now reigns at your side. Thank you that his kingdom has no end. And Father, as we celebrate his coming this Christmas, as we delight and enjoy those celebrations, we pray that in our minds it would not be fantasy but that we would have a grip on the reality of what you have done and are doing through the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please, Father, continue to show us the truth about your son Jesus this Christmas, and may we take great delight in it. For your glory's sake. Amen.